Hey everyone, welcome to Big Ideas Small Business. I was on a uh, Zoom call earlier with my business owners advisory board group, uh, also called BOAB, and it's a group that's done through the Lexington Chamber of Commerce for folks that own businesses to be in kind of a mastermind group with other business owners to chat through ups and downs and pros and cons and ask questions, give advice, etc. And today's topic was about, you know, how we're adjusting during the coronavirus. Um, and then I also presented on how to protect your small business. And there were several folks that had messaged about, messaged me privately about getting the replay. And because it's a private group, we didn't record it. But I wanted to share some of the things that we discussed with the group um, because it might be helpful for other folks. So protecting your small business, I mean, I think right now, especially since we're all slowing down quite a bit, people are working remotely, business is kind of at a temporary hold, that now's a great time to look at your process, your procedure, how things are set up for you financially, things like that, and make adjustments. Um, obviously there are a lot of things that folks are kind of revising and redoing considering what's going on right now. Um, so, you know, there's no better time to look at how you are set up and how you're operating and how you might change things so that it's easier for you and easier for your clients. Now, obviously I am not an attorney. I'm not an accountant. Um, I, this is just, you know, from my personal experience and my situation. So I would definitely suggest getting with and or having an attorney, a CPA, et cetera, review all of your contracts and any information like that just to make sure that it's relevant to your business, that it's legally sound, and that um, there's nothing that needs to be tweaked. Uh, and of course, you know, every industry and every business is a little different. So a service-based business might have different needs than a brick and mortar, might have different needs than somebody with a, a piece of property or you know, a building or a car or equipment might be different for somebody that sells a physical product. So, you know, some of this stuff may be relevant to you, some may not, and some may need to be tweaked based on your type of organization. But just kind of going through a couple of things that we discussed today to help protect your business. Um, the biggest thing discussed was contracts and agreements. A lot of folks in my industry don't have contracts or agreements, and it's kind of discussed on the phone. Um, you know, it's, it's great, but the good old boys handshake just isn't the same and it doesn't hurt to have everything spelled out. It answers a lot of questions for your clients and it also helps eliminate any potential issue or disagreement later on. If you spell everything out up front, then there's no confusion or question about, you know, when money is due. Um, what are the payment terms? What is the money used for? What are you charging your clients? And you know, how does that get rationed out? What if they want to cancel? What if you want to cancel? So I highly suggest having a contract or an agreement and what terms need to be included obviously are going to vary by industry and by business type. But, and this goes into, you know, talking to an attorney, but, you know, big things that you want to make sure included are payment terms and all the details with payment terms. What is the total amount that's owed for their, your product, service, et cetera? When is that money due? Do you require a, a deposit or a retainer? Um, if so, how much is it and when is it due? And then when's the next payment due or the final payment due? 
Um, you know, what if a check bounces? What if uh, somebody doesn't pay? What are the ramifications there? So for us, for event planning, which is the business that I'm in, 50% of the contract total is due up front. Now, for us, this is not a deposit. This is an advance on the final total. And the difference is a deposit is something that's retained in an account and it's used towards an end product. But if someone cancels, that deposit could be refundable, even if your contract says that it's not. A deposit is not an advance. It's money that you're holding. So if you say that you have a deposit of 50%, um, you know, that can be brought up later and be refunded. If it's an advance towards a future contract, then, you know, that is a different deal. Um, you know, an advance, a retainer, a payment, etc. those can all be used. Now, some groups do have a deposit depending on the type of business or service that they are operating under. Um, and so then that clause would be relevant. Um, we then have the remaining balance is paid 50, or I'm sorry, 30 days out from the event date. So 50% of our fee is paid up front. 50% is paid 30 days out from the event date. Um, and we accept check or card. Now we have a clause in there that, you know, if you are going to write a check, here's who it's made out to. If you're going to pay with a card, we require a signed authorization form. The reason for that is that we have been burned in the past where someone pays with a card and they give us their information and they've authorized the payment, but I process it on the back end through Square. And because it's over the phone, we don't have a receipt or something that they've signed. And we've had two instances where a client after the fact has disputed the charge with their credit card company. And when presented to us and we showed the credit card company the email where they authorized the charge, the credit card company sided in the client's favor saying that I didn't have a signed receipt showing that they had authorized the charge. So the credit card company refunded the money to the client in full. I had to pay a fine and we had to cover the cost for the ingoing and outgoing processing fee that the um, processor charged. So it obviously was not ideal, but we now require a signed authorization form from anyone wanting to use a card. We don't allow electronic signatures. It has to be an actual signature and we keep this on file for one year and then we, you know, get rid of the information. Um, that way, if anything were to come up, we can show that they did authorize it, they signed it, they filled out the form and they clearly understood what they were paying for and how it worked. Um, now we have a processing fee for card payments. So those terms are listed out. Um, and you'll want to check with your bank and with an accountant to make sure that you're charging the right fee, uh, that you're allowed to charge the fee. You know, there are certain things you can charge for and certain things you're not allowed to charge for. Um, for example, I'm pretty sure that it's not, you're not allowed to charge an extra fee for an American Express card versus Visa, MasterCard, or Discover. I think it has to all be the same charge. And that may have changed, but when we originally started doing this, you could not charge a different amount for Amex than the other card types. So you just wanna make sure that once you get this all drafted up that you've got professionals looking at it in that area so they can tell you what wording needs to be changed, what should be added, what should be removed. Um, for payments, if there's a late payment, we have a fee for that. 
Um, and then for every 30 days that that payment is late or delinquent, an additional fee is charged. Um, and, you know, continual failure to pay could result in the loss of service, um, the cancellation of the event, you know, denied access to the venue or certain items or, you know, whatever. I mean, we've got a list of what could potentially happen if they continue to not pay. Um, and then, you know, we also have some terms for return checks, what the fee is for that. And if we have to go to collections or small claims court, or if we have to file a lawsuit to get the money, then, you know, you're responsible for the total owed, any penalty and interest, and any potential court costs or legal costs, filing fees, attorney's fees, et cetera, that we may incur as a result of a client not paying. And it seems like a lot up front. And you, you know, there's a good chance that you never need any of those terms. But if you need it and you don't already have it lined out, you can't come back and add it later. So if a client's delinquent in paying and you don't have a clause in your contract that you're charging interest on that missed payment, you can't come back later and add that interest. Um, we've had several checks that are returned for insufficient funds or it's not an authorized check, or it's supposed to have two signatures and it only has one. And whenever that happens, the bank charges us a fee or a fine, you know, and so we have to pass that on to the client, but it has to be clearly stated in the contract. Um, cancellation, you know, what are your cancellation policies? At what point will you allow a cancellation? If they cancel within a certain time frame, is any of the money retained refunded? Is it all forfeited? What happens to their date? Is there any additional money that's owed? Um, you know, for us, if they cancel within a certain period of time, their final balance is still owed. Uh, you know, we've done the work, we've we've scheduled things, we've paid for things, and so um, they would still owe us that money even if they cancel. Um, so you just wanna make sure that it's clearly written out what happens. And you also wanna put in there, what if you cancel? Does their money get refunded? How does that work? What's the time frame? Are you going to work to try to replace yourself or your product or your service? Um, and, you know, how will that kind of be whittled down? Um, you know, no one wants to talk about the crappy stuff, lawsuits and things like that. But, I mean, the whole reason for a contract is to try to keep it out of litigation. So the more that you have lined out in your contract, the more likely you are to be able to settle things out of court, which is the least expensive option. Um, you know, one thing you'll want to look at is the venue selection of your litigation. So I'm based in Fayette County, which is Lexington, Kentucky. Um, our contracts, especially when we're providing a service in the state of Kentucky, list that any issue will be, you know, seen in a Fayette County court and will abide by Fayette County and or Kentucky laws. Um, now, when we do work out of state, we look at what the situation is, what the event is, how it's being run, and then we decide whether or not we need to change that to be local to where the event's taking place, or do we keep it with Kentucky, and it, it varies by client. Um, so you'll want to make sure that you've got a choice of venue. Now, I will tell you from personal experience, when you do not have the venue 
selected. If someone sues you, they can sue you in the county, the city, or the state where they reside. So I was sued by a group that was based out of Los Angeles, California, which meant that they filed their claim in the Los Angeles Circuit Court um, or whatever, the court in L.A., uh, that meant that I had to hire a an attorney in California, and I also had to have an attorney here in Kentucky. So every time we had a conference call, every time there was an email, every time there was a meeting, I'm paying two hourly rates. Um, you know, my attorney is not barred in California, so she could not represent me out there. But also, a business can't be self-represented, so we had to have both. And it gets very expensive very quickly. Had that contract said that it would be litigated in Kentucky, you know, the outcome may have been different and, you know, it would have been definitely a lot less expensive because we would have litigated in Kentucky. And then my attorney who I was already paying would have been the only attorney I needed because she's already barred in the state where I live and where the work was done. Um... So I just saved you several thousand dollars in potential legal costs. Just make sure if nothing else you have on your contract, a venue clause. And then obviously right now, the big thing everyone's talking about with coronavirus is a force majeure. Now, most people probably do not have pandemic listed in your force majeure. And hopefully this never happens again. Who would have thought it would have happened the first time? But your typical force majeure will have riots, act of God, labor disputes, um, government shutdowns, natural disasters, things like that. So if your building burns down and you're not able to provide a rehearsal dinner, or your warehouse catches on fire and you, all of your product is destroyed or, um, you know, labor disputes cause all of your employees to leave and then you can't provide whatever it is that you've been paid or contracted to provide, a force majeure clause would come into play. And then, you know, that would kind of, whatever your force majeure clause says, that dictates and, and kind of directs how you move forward. Are you replacing the product? What's the time frame? Um, are you replacing the service? And what does that look like? Are you rescheduling the date in my circumstance? Um, and then how does that money that's been paid previously, how does that translate over to a new potential contract? So you'll want to make sure that, you know, you are looking at those details and have a, an attorney revise it and, and review it before you put it in a final contract. But a force majeure clause is crucial. And again, you know, it's very rare that a clause like that would come into play, but you know, then we have coronavirus. So it, it can happen. It does happen. It's better to have all these clauses and never need them than to need them and not have them because then it defaults to whatever the city or state says or, you know, then you kind of litigate back and forth. I mean, there are a lot of ways it can go if you don't have a clause written out. Um, you know, I suggest having on there how you work and what your process of communication is and when folks can expect to meet with you or how they'll meet with you or what you're responsible for, what they are responsible for. Um, you know, if a client is supposed to give you something and that helps you do your job and they don't give it to you or they don't give it to you in time, you want to make sure that you're not liable for your lack of providing whatever the finished product is, which was a result of them not providing ABC thing to you or not providing it in a timely manner. Um, you know, 
and your contract will grow as your business grows. You know, our contract when we first started was one page long and now it's three pages of very small print long because things come up and you learn and you adjust and there's something that you're not thinking about now because it's never happened that will happen down the road and you'll have to add it. Um, you know, we had to put something in there that, so as an event planner, we have designers that we work with and, you know, so we can create invitations or save the dates or programs or tickets, flyers, etc. But that cost is not in my initial proposal for most clients. Now, some clients tell us up front during the proposal stage that they need those items. And so in that case, we work out an estimate up front and give it to them. But if it's not something that we've discussed before, then we'll put in our, our scope of work that we can, if they need, design, create, print, distribute, etc. these pieces, but the cost for the time and the design and the cost to print and or distribute, depending on what it is, is above and beyond our base price. And we give them an estimate on, you know, what the design rate is per hour. And, you know, we tell them that we'll quote per piece what the printing cost would be and distribution cost, because obviously we can't really ballpark that without knowing what it is. Um, but this clearly outlines for our clients that, you know, this is a feature that you can use later if you want or you need, but it's going to be an additional cost. And that way they don't come back later and say, well, you know, you're the planner, this should just be included and we need you to do this at no additional charge. So again, you know, it, a lot of the terms are things that you may never need, but it's like insurance. It's better to need it and, or to not need it and have it than to need it and not have it. You know, once the issue happens and you're in court, you can't go back and try to negotiate those terms. Um, you know, if you've got a clear cut contract and it's written out, it will alleviate a lot of stress and a lot of money in litigation. Um, obviously, again, I cannot stress enough, have an attorney, have your banker, have your CPA, have these folks review your contracts and your terms and the language to make sure that it's relevant to your business, that it's correct, um, and that it's legal so that it's, it doesn't kind of bite you in the butt later if it's not the right format. Um, outside of that, I would just make sure that you have everything in writing. You know, the contract is great, but you're going to have a lot of conversations in person and on the phone. And for us, we always like to recap those conversations, um, not because we don't trust our clients and not because they don't trust us, but it just kind of helps alleviate any question or misinterpretation or misunderstanding on our part and on theirs. I'm just as much sending this email recap to make sure that I understood what they were saying as much as I'm wanting to make sure that they're on the same page with what I'm agreeing or willing or offering to do. So it could be something as quick and simple as a bullet pointed email that says, just to recap our conversation or our meeting, here's the prices that I quoted you, or here are the services that we discussed, or here's the task list, here's what you're responsible for, here's what I'm gonna take care of, here's the deadline we reviewed, You know, please let me know if I've misinterpreted this. Um, otherwise we'll get to work and it just kind of helps track everything and make sure that everything's on the same page, but also should a potential litigation come up, having things in writing in a timestamped email <clears throat> doesn't hurt to, you know, I mean, you can't go back and say, well, I said on a phone call 
that we were going to do this or we weren't going to do this. I mean, it becomes he said, she said, or she said, she said, or whatever. Um, so having a timestamped email where it's clearly written out, there can be no mistake, there can be no misinterpretation. Um, and it just, it helps answer a lot of questions. It helps alleviate a lot of issue, but also heaven forbid you end up in court. Those emails could make or break a potential case in saying, you know, they can't come back and say, well, she said on the phone that she would do this because then I can say, well, here's this printed email where I lined out exactly what it was we were going to do. So I highly suggest making sure everything's in writing. And again, you know, the good old boy handshake may work for some things, but it works until it doesn't. And if you don't have it in writing before the issue arises, it's too late after the fact. Um, we talked about key man insurance and insurance in general. As an event planner, we always recommend to our clients that they get a day of insurance rider or umbrella. This covers them for property, damage, theft, bodily injury, um, etc. And the amount that you need is dependent on the event. You know, a small private wedding is going to need different insurance coverages than a larger outdoor ticketed festival. Uh, and the price is going to be different depending on the type of event. So you'll definitely want to chat with an insurance agent to make sure that you're covered and you're covered for the right things. Uh, there are a lot of add-ons. There's terrorism. There's pandemics. There's uh, force majeure. For public events that are outside, you've got a rain date clause. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that you can add. For events that are serving and selling alcohol, there's alcohol liability coverage. Um, and you can get this insurance through your insurance your current insurance provider for events we suggest starting with anyone who writes your homeowners or your renters or your car insurance because typically they can add an umbrella rider policy um, and it's a little easier than starting from scratch but there are also vendors and insurance providers that write event specific insurance now if you're not in the event world you may need a different type of insurance um, but we always suggest making sure that you are covered. It's better to have more than you need and pay a little bit more per month than need it and not have it. And it could save you tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars later in potential issue and claims and all of that. And again, you can't get the insurance after the incident. You have to have it in place before something happens. So there are a lot of folks that have um, a business disruption insurance clause or coverage in their policy in their their liability insurance and some of them have been able to use that for coronavirus disruptions um, now some people that's been excluded so it depends on what your policy says but you know there are coverages that are in place that help you but also if you have an employee that gets in a car accident or a client slips and falls in your facility or a patron slips and falls in your facility or whatever you need to make sure that you're covered as a business owner key man insurance is something that i would suggest looking into this is a, a much bigger conversation but it covers if you as the key man or key woman or key operator of your business were to die or be incapacitated for whatever reason, this insurance would cover uh, operating expenses, funeral expenses, um, the shutting down or the reallocation of your business and your funds. Um, so it's a two-part deal. You have to have the insurance which is a monthly plan. And then you also have to have the directive. So we have key man insurance and we have a um, 
an electronic version and a print version of this directive. And it, our attorney has a copy and we have a copy and it has all of our passwords for social media accounts, bank accounts, our accounting system, um, you know, computers, everything. And obviously those we update, we update our passwords every six months. So every six months we update this manual. Um, you know, if I were to die, heaven forbid, I'm the keeper of the passwords and I have them memorized. I don't have them written down anywhere. So if someone were to come in and try to help steer my organization or to, um, you know, run the business or, or to shut it down, they are going to need these passwords. Uh, and it's going to save a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort if that's in a clear directive. And then I have a plan that says how they'll operate the business moving forward. If they opt to shut it down, how they're going to shut it down, how clients are to be contacted. Um, part of the money goes towards employee pay. And so it clearly lines out what vendors are to be used, who the attorney is, who the accountant is, how things should be handled, where the money is supposed to go, and then what the next steps are moving forward. And that way it's not, um, it's not confusing. There's no issue. There's no question. It's all clearly lined out and my team and, you know, the legal folks and the accountants and the trustees can all sort through it easily, hopefully, and, and, hopefully stress-free for the employees and the clients so that um, things can continue to operate and not be disrupted and stopped because I have passed on. Um, so I would highly recommend looking at key man insurance. Um, and again, the amount of coverage you need and the amount you're going to pay per month is going to vary based on the type of business. If you have property or equipment or, you know, you've got a big warehouse full of employees or whatever, you may need more coverage than a service-based business that runs out of your home um, that would just be to repay clients and pay for legal fees and things like that. So you'll want to chat with an insurance agent that covers those items to make sure that they can walk you through what the coverage is and how much you need and how you need to set it up. Um, that way it doesn't become a cluster if anything, heaven forbid, were to happen to you. Uh, so these are just a couple of tips. Again, there's probably a lot of other things, but these are just some things that I have learned through a lot of mistakes that I've made and some lawsuits that I've been in. I've not been in a whole lot, but I've been in a couple. And, you know, these were things that I wish I had had in place prior to then, which probably would have prevented the lawsuit in the first place or would have made the lawsuit a lot cheaper and a lot shorter period of time. Um, so hopefully this helps some of you, but I would love to hear from you if there are things that you've done already or things that you're tweaking and changing to start doing to better protect your business. I'd love to hear about it. Uh, and maybe there's some things I need to do too. So thanks for tuning in. Hopefully this was a little helpful and a little insightful and we will see you soon. You've been listening to Big Ideas, Small Business, an unfiltered educational and inspirational look at the ins and outs of starting, running, and owning a small business. Thanks for listening.